This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. What would you do if you needed a drug or medical supply to stay healthy, but you couldn't afford it? In fact, let me stack this up a bit. What if it wasn't you? What if it was your mother or father, a partner or a child? How far would you go? While you're chewing on that, let me put a very different image in your head. A tiny primate, just five inches long with big bulging eyes and long spindly fingers. Now, if you've listened to this program before, you know the drill. We don't at this moment know how or whether these two things connect. But at the end of this program, we're going to put researchers who study these two very different things together and see if they can build some interdisciplinary connections. Joining us today on the line from Salt Lake City is Michelle Lichman. She's a nurse practitioner and a researcher at the University of Utah whose work focuses on the social context of chronic disease management with a particular emphasis on diabetes and technology. Her team's study on the underground exchange of diabetes medications and supplies was recently published in the Journal of Diabetes Science and Technology. Michelle Lichman, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And with us in studio is Nanda Groh. She is a biological anthropologist at Utah State University who specializes in primatology and behavioral ecology with a focus on understanding the ecological, morphological, and genetic context for primate behavioral adaptations. Her study on cryptic communication in pygmy tarsiers was recently published in the journal Folia Primatologica. Nanda Groh, thanks for being here. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be here. Let's start today by talking about diabetes. This is one of the most common chronic conditions in the United States, and so you might think that the U.S. healthcare establishment has figured out a way to ensure patients have access to the medications and supplies they need. Michelle Lichman, suffice it to say, that's not the case. So can we start today just with a little primer on what sorts of drugs and supplies people with diabetes might need? Sure. People with diabetes need a variety of oral medications, so different types of pills when they have type 2 diabetes. And then those with type 1 and type 2 diabetes can use insulin. And on top of that, people need glucose strips, which requires a glucometer. And then in many situations, continuous glucose monitoring, which is a glucose sensor, and insulin pumps can also be used. There's a lot of situations in which people can't access these necessities. Is that right? Absolutely. Because of insurance premiums and negotiated rates for co-pays, there are definitely a lot of people who need diabetes medications and supplies that just simply can't afford them. And I read that the cost of diabetes treatment is actually rising. How can that be? It's interesting and also very distressing. The cost of insulin has tripled over the last several years. And There's several rationales for that. One is that the pharmaceutical companies, the cost is rising on that end. There's middlemen, the pharmacy benefit managers that also take a cut. And then there's also the insurance companies that have these negotiated rates. And so someone has to take the hit and it's either the patient, the insurance, the pharmacy benefit manager, or the pharmaceutical company. And right now, patients are really struggling with it. And insulin hasn't changed drastically in many, many decades, right? This is still the same medication that people have been needing to access and accessing for quite some time. While there have been some improvements in insulin, the base structure of insulin is the same. You're correct. 
So this has caused a crisis and your team studies sought to understand the extent to which people were using alternative avenues to exchange diabetes medication and supplies. What clued you in that there was an issue regarding the black market to understand here? So I'm a nurse practitioner and I see patients every day with diabetes and I was starting to see and hear stories about how individuals were meeting with others in parking lots or they were doing these online exchanges. And so I learned about it through my own patient population. And then also as a social media researcher who explores how people go online and interact with other people with diabetes, I started to see posts of this as well, not just nationally, but locally here in Utah. As a nurse practitioner, this has got to be really distressing to see when you tell a patient, okay, you need this and this and this, and they look back at you and they say, I can't get it. That's that's going to be heart-wrenching. Absolutely. You know, the patients that I have had the pleasure of taking care of, they want to stay healthy. They want to be well. And so making sure that they have access to what they need because it's affordable is critical. So let's tick through the numbers of what you found here. A third of people in your study acknowledged receiving a donation of medicine or supplies from someone who wasn't their doctor or their pharmacist. A quarter of these folks had traded for these things, and that was about the same number who'd said they'd borrowed medicine or supplies. And then 15% said they had actually purchased diabetes medicine and supplies in an underground exchange. And so the bottom line is that this is happening a lot. You also asked the people in your study why they were doing this. What did you learn about why they were engaging in these sort of like non-official and even underground channels for procuring medications? From a receiving end, people were in situations where they were having to make decisions about paying for rent or paying for insulin, and they were on the verge of rationing or already rationing, and so people really just needed to access what they needed. With regards to those who actually gave willingly, over 50% had donated to some degree. Really, there was this idea of altruism where people felt compelled to donate because they recognized the need in others and they could actually see themselves in that position or they previously had at some point in time been in that position and they just didn't want to see a fellow person with diabetes struggle because they just couldn't afford medications. So while a lot of people were really desperate for a medication or supplies, others had excess drugs or goods and had found a way to donate these things out of a sense of like altruism, right? Absolutely. So some people, when they did have an extra stockpile of a medication or some supplies, they would be willing to share until their stockpile had depleted, and then they would make sure that they could take care of themselves before they shared any further. And bureaucracy plays a role here, too. Can you explain that? Yeah, so there are situations where it might be a Friday night and they're trying to go pick up their prescription at the pharmacy and they're out of refills. So because it's difficult to get a hold of a provider on a Friday night, people run the risk of not having insulin at all. And so one thing that people have done is they've gone into these communities where they've said, well, can I borrow a medication? Because that would actually prevent this delay of this prescription refill. Can I borrow a vial and I'll replace it on Monday or Tuesday? And so people are kind of doing these borrowing exchanges. This also happens when a technology breaks, like an insulin pump, and someone needs to just borrow. And this is also seen when someone goes on vacation and for some reason they don't have access to the insulin that they need and so they borrow you know, a small supply from somebody. I don't have diabetes, but just listening to you 
describe this is raising my stress levels. I can feel it. This has got to be an incredibly stressful situation for patients and, and for the people who, who care about them. The average person with diabetes thinks about diabetes 180 times a day. And if you add on all of the stress related to the cost of diabetes medications, it can become completely overwhelming. So this is obviously not an ideal situation for getting medications. What do you think it says about the system we've built to care for people with chronic conditions? One of the things that I think is really important is that people are doing these underground exchanges to prevent hospitalization and death. And if you think about the system as a whole, are people in a position to not be hospitalized and not have an early death? And we're not encouraging that, even though we know that we recommend that people manage their diabetes well. We need to be able to give them the resources they need in an affordable way so that they can do that. You looked at this in the context of the U.S. healthcare system, U.S. patients. Are there similar studies that have been done or are underway to look at these sorts of exchanges and relationships outside of the United States? I'm not aware of any, but one thing I think um, is important is that in our study, we found that some people were using offshore contacts to purchase insulin, so Canada and Mexico, for example. And I know that there are concerns from those countries about insulin being depleted there. If we think about medical tourism, we in Utah have an insurance company that actually encourages medical tourism. Well, they'll fly someone to San Diego and bus them to Mexico to get insulin. And so if you think about those neighboring countries, if everybody from the United States is getting insulin from them because it's cheaper, what does that do to their supply? And so there's definitely downwind issues, even using neighboring countries. What do you hope comes of this research? And also what issues related to this do you want to look at next? One of the things that we are really hopeful for is that policymakers can understand the extent that people are going to in order to stay as healthy and well as possible, and that the cost of insulin and other medications and supplies is untenable and something needs to change. And so our hope is that there are some real policy changes that come from this. Looking into the future, we hope to understand other benefits related to peer support. So my overarching research relates to people with diabetes and the peer support that they can provide to one another. So my hope is to further explore how emotional support, tangible support, appraisal support, how all of that can be explored further. That's Michelle Lichman. Her team study on the underground exchange of diabetes medications and supplies was recently published in the Journal of Diabetes Science and Technology. Michelle, can you stick around for a bit and listen in as I chat with our next guest? Absolutely. The pygmy tarsier is just about the cutest thing in the world, but to study one in the wild, you've got to head to central Sulawesi in Indonesia. And even then, it's not easy to find these little guys. In fact, until 2000, they were widely considered to be extinct. But then in 2000, scientists in Indonesia found a dead one in a rat trap. And then, Nanda Grow, you came along. How did you decide you wanted to find and study the pygmy tarsier? Well, my interest in primatology in general began when I was an undergrad at Arizona State, and I was learning about all the different types of primates, and tarsiers just were so fascinating to me. They're just absolutely the coolest creatures that you could ever lay your eyes on. 
But when I was learning about Tarsiers, I also learned that there was this one species that had only been known for museum specimens, and we really knew nothing about them from the wild. And so that kind of was my main drive to go to grad school and try to find these guys and learn everything that we could possibly learn about this particular species that is actually the only montane species of Tarsier, and it's one of the very few montane species of primate in general. And so you actually, you went out into the field. Yes. And you found some of these living. These were the first living specimens of this species of tarsier that a scientist had seen. Tell me this story. This is amazing. Yeah. So it's not quite as glamorous as it might sound. It took a very long time, but they originally found the specimen on this mountain in Sulawesi, which is this funny shaped island in Indonesia. And so I went to the same location where they had found this specimen in 2000. And I spent about two months before we actually located the first living specimens of Tarsius pumilus, which is the Latin name for pygmy tarsier. And The way that I was able to find them was by laying out these mist nets, which are commonly used to capture bats or birds or other airborne animals. And I just laid them out in a grid type system and checked them throughout the night for a couple months. And finally, I was able to capture one pygmy tarsier, which then led to finding more by radio tracking them. So you you, you find this thing when you when you see it in the net, this has got to be a mind blowing moment. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. The first and foremost thing that's on your mind is the welfare of the animal because you want to get them out of the net, out of the rain and into safety. And so the first thing you have to do is remove them from the net and then you want to try to handle them as little as possible before releasing them. But it is very exciting and they're just the coolest things. So that was in 2008. That's a blink of an eye. And yet we know so much more about these animals now. You've been involved in a lot of that research. What is it like describing a species sort of from square one? It's doing a lot of comparative work and looking at other species of tarsier that we know more about and just trying to figure out everything there is to know about the species, like how they use their habitat, what their group sizes are like, how they get their food, how they communicate. And so it's really just collecting data on everything that you can possibly get your hands on. And one of the things we've learned is that they do communicate differently than other tarsiers. They're higher pitched. That's maybe not really unexpected given their size because larger animals tend to have deeper calls, but it's not something we would know one way or another without a really fascinating bit of further field work. So in order to find out how they communicate, you've got to capture some and you've got to put little things on their back, these these transmitters. Right. Yeah, so how I was able to actually study the species is to capture a few individuals from different groups and put radio tracking devices on their backs. And that allowed me to follow them around. And I noticed that they were being very quiet compared to lowland species. So they weren't making any sounds, or at least they weren't making any sounds that I could hear. And when I was handling the captured individuals to put the radio tracking devices on them, I did notice that they were opening their mouths really wide, like they were screaming bloody murder and no sound was coming out, at least not anything that I could hear. It did take me a little bit longer than I'm comfortable admitting to realize that they were, in fact, making sounds. It was just me who 
had the deficiency in hearing. But after I realized they were, in fact, calling to one another, I was able to come back with recording equipment in the following field season using this special recorder that's used to record bat calls, actually, because most recording equipment can't record really high frequency sounds. And I was able to record some of these calls that they were making to one another that were actually very much like the calls that lowland tarsiers make to one another. They were just at a higher frequency. And to hear this with the human ear, we have to slow down the recording. Right. So high frequency sounds are very rapid sound waves, basically. And so Pitch is the way we interpret high frequency sounds. And so in order to hear lower pitch sounds within the range of human hearing, like 20 kilohertz is our upper limit. And these guys are communicating at like 80 and 90 kilohertz. And so in order for us to hear that, we just slow down that sound wave. There's a really charming graphic in your study that describes the kind of vocalizations you heard in the recordings, which you correlated with other behavioral observations. There were long whistles and there were short whistles. There were twitters and chirps. But the thing that I really loved was duets. Tell me about the duets. Yeah, duet calls are actually relatively common across monogamous primates. So when there's a mated pair, they will call to one another when they're going out about their day just to let each other know where they are and just so they know where each other is located. And that's something actually that lowland tarsiers do, and it's a way to find them. You can hear these really pretty sounds. They're kind of like bird calls. It's one way to locate lowland tarsiers, but Part of the reason why we haven't been able to locate uh, pygmy tarsiers in the past is because we can't hear their duet calls. Well, it turns out they are making them. We just can't hear them. So now we can. Do you have plans or intentions or, or dreams of going back and doing further research? Yeah, I am currently working on a proposal to go back and try to find this species on different mountains because we currently don't know the extent of their range across Indonesia and they very well could have a very localized distribution. So right now, we really just know them existing in sort of the area that that you and a, a very small number of other researchers have described, right? Right. So just one mountaintop. What is the next thing you want to learn about these animals? Well, what I'm working on now is trying to figure out how they fit into primate evolution. And so how closely related are they to other tarsiers and what can they tell us about our earliest ancestors. And so their small body size and their really high-pitched vocalizations are clues that they are, in fact, much more similar to the very earliest primates that were around about 60 million years ago compared to other primates that we know of. And so I'd like to do an evolutionary comparative study. And you're going to do that with genetic exploration? Yes, both genetics and anatomy. That's Nanda Grow. Her study on cryptic communication in pygmy tarsiers was recently published in the journal Folia Primatologica. So now this is really my favorite part of the program. Nanda Grow, this is Social Context of Diabetes researcher Michelle Lichman. And Michelle, this is biological anthropologist Nanda Grow. Hi, Michelle. Hey, I am not going to take credit for this connection. I was actually chatting with Nanda just a few days ago, and she brought up the idea of like this connection between your research, which I hadn't even thought about, which is like the black market exists not just for drugs in America, it exists for small nocturnal primates as well. Nanda, when you heard uh, Michelle talking about her research, what went through your mind? 
Well, the first uh, thing that went through my mind is that the driver for the black market here for diabetes medications is is a bit different, right? It sounds like this kind of a community of sharing and altruistic intentions of people who are just trying to survive and get the medications they need. But at the same time, there is that similarity where this lack of economic stability in our healthcare system is driving the market here. And that's also what's driving things like the pet trade that causes people to put tarsiers in cages and sell them on the black market in Indonesia. Another thing that struck me is that it's international, right? So like the supply of pets in Indonesia is being exported to other countries. And it does seem like part of the black market for medications here is people seeking these markets elsewhere, like in Mexico, for example, or maybe India. That's really interesting. I had no idea that there was this black market for primates as pets, as a healthcare provider, as a nurse. I'm just curious, have there ever been issues with transmission of parasites or viruses when taking a primate from the wild and then having that as a pet? Oh, absolutely. And because primates are more closely related to humans than other types of animals, they're a much bigger vector of disease. So zoonotic diseases is a big risk in the pet trade, but the demand for the pets uh, really outweighs those risks. Tell me more about the, you know, who's actually trying to have a tarsier as a pet? I want a tarsier as a pet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So first of all, I do want to stress that primates are not good pets, right? They're very highly social animals with very complex cognitive systems, and they don't make good pets because they haven't been domesticated, right? Another thing is they're very dangerous. Like tarsiers have lots of really sharp teeth, and they can turn their head 180 degrees and bite you. So there's just something that's more of a danger and not something that you want to keep in your house. But that said, they are cute and things like slow lorises. You might have seen videos of slow lorises on the internet, like the Tickle Me video um, went viral a few years ago. A lot of the demand is coming from China, actually, where there are laxer regulations and laxer enforcement of regulations in having these animals as pets. And some of the demand also is coming from Western countries also, especially because of social media. So that's kind of something I wanted to ask you, Michelle, is how has social media kind of impacted the demand or increased maybe the black market trade for medicine? So one of the things that's interesting is that Australia or the UK will often approve a medication or a technology prior to the United States. And so because of social media, people with diabetes here in the States learn about these new technologies, learn about these new medications that become available. And sometimes they actually reach out to people through these online channels to try and access those medications or supplies, really to try them out to see if that might be a better solution for their own management. So we're definitely seeing that international exchange as well. Just out of my own curiosity, because my mom is deaf and I have several members who are deaf and you're studying language and these vocalizations, did you ever look at gestures or hand gestures or body language with regards to the tarsiers in your research? You know, that's something that's really interesting because a lot of other primates do use facial communication, like facial expression and gestural communication. But unfortunately, it's really hard to study in nocturnal primates because they're so teeny tiny, you know, and it's hard to do those direct observations. So that's kind of why vocal communication has been the focus of a lot of nocturnal primate research, because it's just the easiest data that we can get. 
Nanda, are there pygmy tarsiers now in captivity in like research institutions or zoos where they can be observed more closely, albeit outside of the context of their natural environments? No. So the only live members of the species have been observed in the wild. The only ones that we have anatomical evidence from are dead specimens. The population is so small and challenging to even access. It's all the way around the world and they're challenging to identify already. Tell me about you know, how big your team has to be in order to support that. Yeah, so I had to hire a lot of local experts and field assistants to help me out. So when I was doing my dissertation research, I hired a team of about six to eight local people who would come to the forest with me. And I wouldn't be able to have completed any of this research without their expertise of the natural environment and the local area. And they um, also were able to help me logistically with being able to carry out an expedition to the top of a mountain, right? It does require a lot of planning. In some ways, that sounds similar to what we do as researchers. When we look at diabetes, we have people who are kind of the local experts that can help direct us to, you know, where are these exchanges happening, which sites might we want to look at in order to identify the context of what's happening with these exchanges. And so it sounds like you're using this community-based approach in a similar way that we are as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think also when we're looking at something like the pet trade, for example, which is another area that I'd like to do more research in, you really need to have a connection to the community and have the trust of people and be able to exchange information rather than just being like this scientist who goes out into the field and doesn't have any connection, you know, with the people around them. Absolutely. We've learned trust is key, especially when talking about these taboo topics that people are worried about that, you know, especially when they're tied to illegal activity. And so definitely that community contact and that trust is so important. We're just about out of time. Nanda Gro, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you. And Michelle Lichman, thank you. Thanks for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. We have production help this week from Alyssa Roberts and Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>